Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Sean, Stuart, great to be in conversation with you both. Hey, guys. Great to catch up, guys. Well, I want to start out this week to see if maybe we can have a little debate here on the Hub Roundtable panel. Um, the whole question and issue uh, around uh, the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated got a shot in the arm, ha, 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 um, over the last seven days with really two events. One, um, the kickoff in Ottawa of the uh, you know, the hearings that are now going to be uh, undertaken related to the government's action of introducing uh, the 21st century equivalent of the War Measures Act, and then comments by newly, um, I don't know, do you call her elected? I, I guess you do. Uh, Danielle Smith, the Premier of Alberta, um, making a an argument that stimulated a lot of debate that uh, vac- unvaccinated people were, you know, some of the worst uh, discriminated group uh, body of Canadians, um, you know, that she had ever, ever seen. So Stuart, let me come to you on this first, because I know you've got some views here. You know, the, tr- the reaction, I got to confess my own reaction to this is like, you know, people get over it. Um, we've got another surge going on. We've got new nasty variants uh, floating around, um, you know, regardless of whether you liked or disliked, um, you know, vaccine mandates, there was at the time, and maybe there still is a a public case that in a healthcare constrained world that Canada lives in, one of the most acute of any advanced, uh, you know, economy in the, in the developed world, we unfortunately have some crappy choices. And sometimes those crappy choices include vaccine mandates. Yeah, I, I think I'll just say first off too, though, that the idea of kind of ranking how oppressed we are is like, I think a bad thing to do. Um, so I'll just take this from the general question of, you know, the consequences for not being vaccinated. And I think one thing that has kind of annoyed me about this, I was kind of expressing, you know, I'm vaccinated, I don't have any problem with getting vaccinated, but I was expressing concern from the very beginning about the mandates because of the kind of stuff we were seeing in our society based on the cultural um, conflict that came out of COVID-19. You know, there was rallies on legislatures, there was protests, there was just an angriness that concerned me. Um, And I just felt like the mandates would juice all that. It would be really bad for us as a society. And I think that I was right about that. I think that, you know, it's a fair argument to say that it was worth it, that we needed to do this to protect people and to boost those numbers for vaccinations. I don't agree with that, but I could. if somebody made that case, I would say that's fair enough. Um, but I think the thing that bugs me the most about this is the glibness from people who support the mandates about the consequences of not being vaccinated because you chose not to do it. Um, you Some people can't work. If you work for the federal government, you can't work. If you work for a company that instituted its own mandate, 
you can't work, you can't fly. I remember a reporter covering the um, the convoy protests here. There was a young guy from Alberta. Um, he was in Ottawa. He just couldn't get home. He had no money, and he, you know, he, even if he had money, he couldn't get home. It was a really sad situation. Um, and I think part of the problem here is the political and the sort of ideological divide has left so little sympathy um, that even, you know, Daniel Smith, I think, made the mistake of being hyperbolic about this. But I think we need to accept that there was, you know, call it discrimination, call it consequences, call it whatever you want. But the effects of this were huge. And I think it did have a pretty serious impact on our society. Sean, what's, uh, what's your take? Is there Again, to string these two events, what's happening in Ottawa and happening at Edmonton at the same time now, it's a moment for reflection, for reassessment. Was the Emergencies Act necessary? And the Emergencies Act, in no small way, was connected and is connected to a kind of um, a state, an overall state response that was about the assertion of the state into our lives in ways that previously many of us obviously not around on this podcast for the War Measures Act under uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. Um, you know, is that, what, is that an aberration? Should we look at what happened during COVID as something that should be an active source of not just public scrutiny, but approbation? Like, is this something Canadians should be leaning into to criticize? Oh boy, uh, you picked a tough question to start today's conversation. I, you know, what I would say is anytime government action bucks up against individual rights, then yes, it absolutely should get scrutiny. And, you know, I, one can't help but think that there was a degree of cognitive dissonance um, going on here that many of the proponents of the most stringent mandates and greatest acts of coercion, all things being equal, are also the biggest champions of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms most days. Um, and so, you know, I, I think there is good reason to, 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 to pursue and, and, and challenge um, some of the choices that we've made, particularly um, because in hindsight, we now know, especially into 2022 with Omicron, um, that the vaccines had limited protection against transmission. But, and this is important, but, there is a degree of, of fog of war here. There's a degree of, you know, looking back um, with, uh, with better information than we had at the time. And there was a world in which, uh, you know, I, I've defended mandates in the past as a kind of middle ground between, you know, a full kind of personal freedom approach on one hand and even greater coercion uh, on the other hand, you know, mandated vaccines. And in this case, you know, people, were able to make individual choices, but then as Stuart says, there were consequences associated with those choices. That was my position at the time. My position has probably weakened a bit as we've learned more about the kind of limits of the vaccine against Omicron and some of these other variants. But, but I think, it, you know, again, through the kind of fog of war, I'm prepared to defend government choices. Although, as I say, I think we ought to be mm -hmm. um, careful uh, about kind of normalizing the extraordinary um, uh, uh, kind of coercive measures that we saw from government uh, over the past 24 or 36 months. Yeah, I have a slightly different take. I want to get Stuart to react to this, which is, you know, there's been a lot of chest thumping, including by Daniel Smith, about freedom. You know, it's the new kind of Mel Gibson 
you know, rallying cry on the Scottish, uh, up in the Scottish Highlands, they're reverberating across the country. Canada is about freedom. Canadians are about freedom. Yes, I agree. But no one is talking about that we have limits on our freedom related to some rather big choices that we've made. For instance, having a single-payer healthcare system in Canada. Yes, there's all kinds of reasons for equity to have that system in place, but let's also be honest about what that system is right now. It, we have less hospital beds per thousand residents than Mongolia, okay? You can go and look at the excellent work that the, uh, you know, the Commonwealth Trust has done on analyzing uh, healthcare systems and looking at Canada versus other peer jurisdictions around the world. Frankly, we pay a lot for a service that's, you know, pretty crappy. Is it, does it look as bad as the pay versus what you get as the United States? No, not quite as bad, but it's pretty much worse than everybody else. So I would just say like, yes, you know, we need to look at this whole debate around vaccine mandates in a much bigger lens, which is, you know, we don't have some choices that we might like to have, which is to say no vaccine mandates because we've made other choices that have curtailed the choices that we'd like to make. So Stuart, I just feel like it's a typically kind of, you know, data-free, uh, immature conversation that we're having around now yet again around mandates as if, you know, yeah, we have freedom. Oh, go for it, guys. We don't. We don't, because we made some lousy choices along the way. Yeah, my family moved to Canada from Scotland when I was five, and my dad made us watch Braveheart every New Year's Eve. Um, like Even when I was older and going out by myself, he would be like, no, 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 watch Braveheart, and then you go out. That's how we do things around here. Uh, so <laughs> I am sympathetic to the freedom argument. Um, but I would say that, you know, the... And, and, you know, I, I think I obviously recognize that I'm on the losing side of this argument because even an embattled Jason Kenney in Alberta brought in a mandate at some point, like he, he was, you know, existentially threatened by COVID measures and still chose to do this. And, you know, every province did it, even for brief periods, private companies have done it. It's something that I think most people were not uncomfortable with. Um, but I do think, you know, like you look at China where, you know, I was reading a piece a few days ago. 200 million people in China are in some kind of lockdown right now. And uh, we live in a country where people were storming legislatures and rallying and protesting because of mask mandates. And you can make fun of them. You can say that that's you know, incorrect and that the freedom thing is silly. Um, but it does create a tension in our society that I think is really important, where you're always, as a leader, worried about that, how much can I threaten people's freedom for what I consider is a good reason uh, before people start to uh, buck a little bit. And I think that is good. I think sometimes it can be silly. I think sometimes when these ideas um, sort of filter out to the broader population, they're not going to be like John Locke type ideas. They're going to be, you know, slogans and things like that. But I still think it can be a good idea. And this happens on the right and the left. Um, you know, the tension is really important, even though people like me are going to lose the argument, you know, 56% of the time. So just in the remaining portion of this section, Sean, I want to kind of push this discussion into the future because we are seeing the emergence of some new, you can, it's hard to even imagine, but more virulent variants of, of COVID-19. Uh, we're seeing case counts increase. We've seen the Ontario uh, public health officer coming forward and urging vulnerable populations to begin to mask up. 
I mean, what happens here, Sean, if in this autumn, again, because of our very constrained, constrained healthcare system, I don't think, feel it's fair. I'd like to be able to make the comparisons to Florida or other jurisdictions, but they just have a lot more ICU capacity, a lot more healthcare beds. They have a different healthcare model. Uh, same with the UK, same with much of Europe. So we are in a different situation here in a highly constrained capacity when it comes to delivery of healthcare. What happens in the fall if we are looking at much more infectious variants that are seeming to show complete breakthrough um, on vaccines and previous naturally acquired you know, immunity? Where are we going to be at? Is there is this debate over in effect? And we're just going to have to let it rip. Because remember how, remember the horror, the kind of pearl clutching that happened the last time around the let it rip argument and debate? Is that where we're at now? <laughs> uh, I would say, I think if I had to answer in one word, I'd say, yes, I think that is where we are now um, for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, you know, the, it doesn't seem to me a natural consequence of the failure of our political class to ensure greater resiliency um, in our healthcare system um, ought to be that people have to give up their freedom. You know, that just strikes me um, um, as uh, as a kind of wrong way to think about this in the sense that, um, you know, our, our, our freedoms, generally speaking, ought to be more absolute than, than just the um, you know, the byproduct of, of the failure of our political class from left to right across the country. The, the second thing I would just say uh, more directly to your question, though, is I one piece of the puzzle that was missing for a lot of, of um, the last couple of years was a kind of proper reckoning of the intergenerational costs and consequences of some of the choices that we've made. And, you know, I think we have growing evidence um, that, well, the steps we took certainly protected um, older Canadians, it came at, at pretty significant cost for, for younger ones. And I don't know, with the benefit of hindsight, if Canadians generally would be prepared to make um, quite those same trade-offs. And, and it seems to me um, this issue of, of intergenerational equity uh, will continue to um, loom much larger than it has in the past as we think about how to deal not just with new variants of, of COVID-19, but but um, but but future pandemics as well. Okay, guys, let's uh, wrap that topic up. Fascinating discussion. We take a quick break. On the backside, we're going to come back and talk about the train wreck uh, of political economy that is the UK on the day of the taping of this roundtable, the fourteenth of October. The government of Liz Trust running smack dab bang into a uh, yeah, just a mess of bonds, fiscal madness. We've got it all for you on the other side of this break. Thank you for listening to The Hub's podcast. Wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that you're just one click away from receiving complimentary access to The Hub's daily email newsletter. We call it Per Diem, and it features some of our best analysis and insights, all built around the big issues and ideas shaping our world. Simply visit our website, www.thehub.ca, follow the links to subscribe, and the next morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, you'll receive Per Diem in your inbox. You can unsubscribe at any time, no worries. 
but we think you're really going to enjoy what you'll hear, see, and read via per diem or daily subscription email. Thanks again for listening to this Hub Podcast. Now back to our program. Hey, Hub listeners, Rudyard Griffiths here, your Executive Director. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief for this, the second half of our Friday Roundtable discussion. Um, Sean, as our political economy guy, I want to come to you first. Um, Dramatic news out of the UK uh, today, Friday, the 14th of October. We've got the Chancellor of the Exchequer. I love the Brits. They always got these fancy names of things. I'm just called the finance minister. But hey, no, it's the Chancellor of the Exchequer <laughs> resigning. A longtime friend, political confidant, Liz Truss, the prime minister, her closest ally. He's out. The Bank of England, as of the end of trading uh, today, wrapping up its emergency bond buying program to seemingly bail out uh, leveraged pension funds. What's going on here, Sean? Is this kind of, I don't know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. It feels to me like the kind of return of the bond vigilantes. Suddenly, governments and political leaders are no longer in the fiscal driver's seat. Yeah, uh, obviously, the prime minister and the now former Chancellor Exchequer misread markets uh, when they rolled out their mini budget a couple of weeks ago now that included a whole package of unfunded tax cuts, uh, which were designed to give the British economy a shot in the arm. <laughs> and, and they ultimately did the opposite. Um, just in parentheses, one of the um, major newspaper chains in the UK presently has a live stream video of a photo of the prime minister next to uh, a, a head of lettuce, and they're waiting to see uh, which one uh, is diminished, uh, which one goes uh, first. Um, let me just defend the government. I, I've done this uh, on this podcast once and in a piece for The Hub uh, last week. I, I don't, you know, I, I've made the case that, of course, the, um, that putting these tax cuts on the proverbial credit card was a mistake. Um, but I find it a bit rich that the International Monetary Fund and these credit rating agencies and bond raters, et cetera, are, um, have suddenly gotten you know, the conversion to, to the road to Damascus when it comes to um, fiscal discipline. They've been lauding implicitly or explicitly government spending uh, profligate, profligately for you know, the better part of a decade. Suddenly, we have a government cutting taxes uh, and everyone's hair gets set on fire. Um, I guess just the last thing I'll say is um, this is hopefully a sign uh, to governments around the world, including here in Canada, um, that the markets aren't going to um, ostensibly continue to, to let governments put tax cuts and spending hikes on the, the credit card um, uh, much longer, which is going to expose um, that a lot of government fiscal plans, including here in Canada, um, you know, are not as uh, sound uh, as we've been led to believe. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I got to say, I mean, I, I don't like to see a conservative government in the UK twisting in the wind like this, but I do love what's happening here because it's something I've written about in the hub in the past, uh, you know, during COVID, I was really worried about this thing called the fiscal check going away, that governments no longer had any external variable pushing back against whatever crazy funding idea or program 
you know, they wanted to create. And in an era of ultra low rates, uh, you're right. The monetary fund, Larry Summers, you can go through the pantheon of the best and the brightest. We're saying, well, now's the time to borrow. Now's the time to invest in your future. Uh, well, bond yields were at, you know, <laughs> 2000 year lows. And I get that. But 2000 year lows usually means you're in a bit of an outrider position. You're at a moment of pivot and change. And guess what? Inflation came along. It's not that I predicted that, but I certainly had a sense that we were in an extraordinary moment and we were making decisions as if that moment would be projected into some endless future of modern monetary theory or just zero bound rates, endless government deficits, all funded at ultra low costs. So Stuart, to bring this debate back to Canada, I mean, we're starting to see now, you know, heavily indebted provinces, Ontario being one of them, but also the federal government. Yes, uh, you know, deficits coming down as inflation, you know, boosts tax revenue uh, and in a sense artificially accelerates not per capita GDP, but gross uh, GDP in the country. What does this do in Canada? Is this starting to register, Stuart? Because I wonder, you know, Canadians, myself included, all of us have spent the last decade and a half living in this magical kingdom of zero bound interest rates. We've all done it personally borrowing debt against our houses, uh, you know, living a life in many cases, personally, that was well beyond our means. Well, governments have been doing arguably just the same thing. Yeah. Anyone who's uh, a millennial, even an older millennial or younger, that's the world we've lived in as adults. Um, you know, you get out of university and that's what it was like. And I think to make a sports analogy, the, the trust thing and the lesson to Canada, I think, you know, if you support a team and they hire a new coach and he comes in with a system and he applies his system, no matter what players he has, no matter what the situation is, it always goes wrong. And the good coaches are the ones who come in and say, well, what do I have? What can I do here? How can I make this team win? And I think trust came with, with some ideas that she'd probably had in her brain for 30 years. And she was excited to be prime minister. And I think a good example of the opposite of that is Stephen Harper. He came in and if you ask Stephen Harper, the economist, if his signature tax cut would be a consumption tax, the GST, he'd probably say, no, I'd prefer to, you know, income tax, something like that. But he did the thing that was politically smart and that in the long run was hard to reverse because nobody's going to jack up the GST. And I think that what we've found now is that the liberals were able to get around that diminished tax base that was created by Stephen Harper's government with all of this debt, all of this deficit spending. And now they can't. Now we're in a situation where that's not going to be as easy anymore. So all of the fun things that the liberals have been doing that they were able to spend, you know, deficit money on, you just can't do it anymore. Things are going to get a lot harder. Um, so I think we actually are kind of in a new era here. And what yeah. does this mean, Sean, for the liberal NDP coalition, which arguably was set up precisely to use significant deficit spending going into the future for many years to come at a high percentage vis-a-vis -vis, you know historical averages and norms in Canada what does that do politically um, is that in danger now because boy I look at the UK and I think this is a cautionary tale for Canada we are also a small economy like the UK leaving Europe we don't have a reserve currency we're not particularly productive. Foreign direct investment is low in Canada. Um, you look at what happened in the UK and I think, wow, the Bank of Canada is gonna actually have to hike longer and higher 
because probably we're worried about the risks here to our currency, the value of the currency, which has fallen precipitously over the last three weeks, and also to bond yields that the bank can't control, which are these longer duration yields. That's what got the UK into trouble. It was the 30 and the 50 year gilts. Again, they have these names, just call them bonds. Now they have to call them gilts. Uh, that's what got them into trouble because the market sets those prices. The central bank set the overnight rate, not the long end of the curve. So I look at this, Sean, and I think, wow, this is like Canada's near future if, if we don't have a central bank that really holds the course here, which will be very counter, again, to the political coalition that the NDP and the liberals are in. Yeah, I think there's a lot to um, what both of you had said. Um, you know, just observe for for listeners that this week the Parliamentary Budget Office released its economic and fiscal outlook, and one number that jumped out at me, Rudyard and Stewart, is that debt interest costs are projected to double um, between now and 2027, 20, 2028, uh, and that reflects, I think, some of the things that you've just raised. But I, I just want to pick up something that Stewart said because I think it was really insightful that. In 2015, when the Liberals jumped from third to first place, they essentially told Canadians that they could have their cake and eat it too, um, that tax rates as a share of GDP would remain low, um, but spending could go up because, as you said earlier, Rudyard, um, a lot of smart people were saying now is the time to borrow, et cetera, et cetera. So in effect, they, they were telling Canadians they could have a dollar worth of government but only have to pay 75 cents. Or, and if you happen to be outside the 1%, or however they were targeting, you know, the 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 so-called rich, um, it could be even um, um, more attractive than that. And I, I, you know, one of the things that progressives, not just in Canada but really around the Western world, have have been reluctant to do is actually to make the kind of costed argument for their vision of a larger and more activist government. Even Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, you know, arguably the the most kind of affirmative um, a proponent of you know, a, a very active government has committed to not raising taxes on households earning more than $400,000. Um, and so, yeah, some, in this new context, something is gonna have to give. Progressives are either going to have to downscale their ambitions, or they're gonna have to make the case that people ought to pay more. Uh, for, for government, something that they've been reluctant to do, and they haven't had to do, you know, for the better part of a decade. And, and I think that will kind of reset a lot of our debates about political economy um, go, go, going forward. It's going to be rooted um, in reality and not the, the kind of magic, uh, Rudyard, that you've raised uh, today and, and on previous episodes. And this has to, Stuart, benefit Pierre Polyev. I mean, if, if the Canadian public is starting to realize that all these government programs, many of which are now baked in, it's not like we can suddenly roll this all back, you know, minus let's hope not having to redo, you know, Christian era, you know, style cuts, you know, what, what does this do for Pierre Polyev? Does it, does it help in a sense, level the playing field, the battleground where in the past conservatives in a sense were forced in this bizarre position of having to, be equally fiscally profligate. They'd usually do it on the tax cut side as opposed to the, the government program side. Is this a moment, not for an argument about austerity, because I still don't think the public is there yet. They may get forced there if we're into a bad recession um, and a debt crisis or a currency crisis. But what do you think this does for the Polyev camp and how, how do they message around this? 
Yeah, I think it helps them in opposition and governance is still just as hard as it always is because, you know, the, the cuts are hard, no matter what you're doing, cuts are hard because the public's general sense of what you can cut is a lot different than what it actually comes to when you get in there and start making changes on the spreadsheet because I wrote a piece about this for the post a while ago, but I always think about it that what the average voter thinks in terms of waste in government is much higher than what you would actually term as waste. Um, so like, you know, using too much printer paper and stuff like that, actual waste, the public thinks of programs they don't like as waste. So they assume there's a lot more waste in government than there really is. And then when it comes to time to actually start cutting, there's always a backlash and any conservative government that's gone through this or the liberals in the nineties, it's very hard to cut. Um, so we'll, I don't think Polyev's going to be doing too much on that front. I think it's going to be politically very difficult to do that. He will have some easy spots, though, like the carbon tax and things that you know generally will be politically good for him and uh, maybe not so hard on the implementation side. May, may I just make a prediction in response to your question, Rudyard? I, I, I think there's a case um, that in this new economic and fiscal context, our politics actually becomes more about culture and values, you know, that we we won't be able to have a kind of transactional politics where the different parties are competing with one another on how many goodies they're going to give people either in the form, as you say, of more spending or, or targeted tax credits or whatever, um, in, in a world in which, um, uh, you know, a, a dollar out needs to be paid for with a dollar in, I, I think there'll be no choice but to hopefully kind of elevate our politics to focus on, you know, where we want to go as a country, what kind of structural reforms are we prepared to undertake to boost growth or increase economic inclusion, or even kind of fundamentally who we are as a society. I, I, I wonder if actually um, we, we move away from what essentially has been a transactional politics for, you know, probably something like 15 years. Hmm. Yeah, I just think of these, you know, big policy agenda items, uh, net zero, um, sustaining a single payer Canadian healthcare system. Um, these are big, big organizational, um, challenges that require, you know, large fiscal expenditures. And I just, again, I, I worry, I worry that if the, if the political culture in the country doesn't clue into the fact, and I think it's the absolute right way to understand what happened uh, this week in the United Kingdom to the trust government. It was a powerful and you know painful object le lesson that Britain has demonstrated that borrowing a lot of money in a time of inflation and rising rates is, is simply not an option. Um, so it's not that these challenges go away or that they're not urgent or they're not worthy of our consideration, but I guess it's, I just hope that we can wrap our heads around, at least for the period of time that inflation remains this growing kind of specter over our economy that political parties could and should start, I think, talking to Canadians in, in new and different ways, just about, about the realities that this country faces, because we have been in this magical kingdom phase uh, as you say, for a decade and a half, and boy, um, this is this is going to be a shock. I think it's really going to be a shock, especially you know. I don't want to be gloomy, but I think the chances of a Canadian recession being worse and outstripping the U.S. in both its severity and duration is very real, given you know how big our bubbles are. UBS was out this week. The Swiss banks and Canada in Toronto has the world's largest housing bubble, as measured by the standard metrics of 
you know, rents to uh, house values, rental values, income, you name it. Um, there's a potential here for a big reckoning. And uh, I just think you look at the trust government, you think, wow, that's not the way to handle it. Um, okay, guys, we're gonna have to stick a pin in it there, but it was a great conversation this week. Hub listeners will do this with you again each and every Friday as part of our commitment at the Hub to provide uh, original analysis and insights. Thanks again so much for listening. Sean Stewart, have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, the Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.